For I've had enough of this world and its pleasures. I will arise and go forth to the house of my young. I will arise and go forth to the house of my father. I will arise and go forth to the house of my young. House of my young. Shalom, and welcome to today's teaching on the Hebraic roots of Christianity, where we study first century Christianity and the faith that Jesus, whose Hebrew name is Yeshua, which means salvation, taught his disciples. And now, Hebraic roots teacher Eddie Chumney of Hebraic Heritage Ministries International. Shalom. I'm Eddie Chumney of Hebraic Heritage Ministries, and we welcome you to today's teaching on the subject the Feast of Trumpets, a wedding celebration. This is part one of the series. We are currently doing a study on the biblical festivals. This will be our transition from the Feast of Shavuot or Pentecost into the fall festivals beginning with Rosh Hashanah or Yom Teruah. In sharing about Shavuot, we shared that Yeshua gave the Torah at Mount Sinai and there was a wedding that took place. Yeshua being the bridegroom in the house of Jacob being the bride. This wedding is going to be associated and connected to Yom Teruah or Rosh Hashanah because one of the themes of Yom Teruah or Rosh Hashanah is that there is the resurrection of the dead. With the resurrection of the dead, we will be completing the marriage process with Yeshua. Ultimately, he is going to return to the earth with his bride, and Yeshua and his bride is going to rule and reign during the Messianic era. Part of how he will help her is to teach the Torah to all nations during the Messianic era. Therefore, this session is entitled, and we will be discussing, the subject of the biblical wedding. The title of the message is Understanding the Biblical Wedding. If we want to tie this all together in the big picture, we need to understand that Messiah in the Messianic era is the purpose of creation. The reason why the God of Israel created the heavens and the earth. In the book, Sound the Great Shofar by Rabbi Menachem Schneerson, on page 13, he writes, Our sages point to Mashiach and the redemption, that is the messianic redemption, the end of the exile of Jacob, as the ultimate purpose for the creation of the world, and the messianic redemption will usher in the messianic era. For God created the world in order that he should have a dwelling place among mortals.
mortals. And this goal will be realized in the era of the redemption. We understand this as Yeshua ruling and reigning from Jerusalem, teaching the Torah to all nations. We realize that that is the fulfillment of the God of Israel creating and desiring that he would have a dwelling place among mortals. Then, Rebbe Schneerson writes on page 111 of the book, Sound the Great Shofar, that our sages state in the Talmud in Sanhedrin 96b that the world was created solely for the Messiah. So in looking at the purpose of creation, Messiah ruling and reigning and dwelling with his bride is the purpose of creation. This will initially be done during the Messianic era. It will ultimately be done for all eternity during the period of the new heavens and the new earth with the bride of Messiah dwelling with him in the new Jerusalem. And looking at Messiah is the purpose of creation. In Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 and 16 it is written who is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of every creature for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in the earth visible and invisible whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers all things were created by him and for him in the book in the garden of the Torah which is Rebbe Schneerson's commentary on the various Torah portions and the Torah portion Tazria Rebbe Schneerson writes on page 164 one of the analogies used to describe the relationship between God and the Jewish people, we would understand this to be the house of Jacob, is the love between a man and a woman. The love between the Jews, or the house of Jacob, and God is a complex, dynamic union. The Holy One, blessed be He, and Israel are one, or achad, joined in an ardent bond. Indeed, the prophet, that is Isaiah, used the simile, your maker is your mate. That comes from Isaiah in chapter 54 and verse 5. The purpose of creation is that the Messiah would have a bride. He would have a destiny mate. This destiny mate, the bride of Messiah, is the nation of Israel or the house of Jacob and ultimately it is the redeemed house of Jacob. And looking at the events at Shavuot, we need to remind ourselves that at Mount Sinai, there was a wedding that took place between Yeshua and the house of Jacob. In Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 2 it is written, Go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, I remember you, the kindness of your youth, the love of your espousals, when you went after me in the wilderness in a land that was not sown. This word espousal is the Strong's number 3623. It means espousal or betrothal. It is the Hebrew word kalula. We're told here that at Mount Sinai in the wilderness that that event is likened unto a betrothal that the God of Israel made with his people. We need to understand that there are two primary stages of a biblical marriage. The first stage is betrothal. At betrothal you are legally married to your mate but you do not physically dwell with your spouse. And Mount Sinai is likened unto a betrothal.
betrothal that the God of Israel, and we understand to be the Messiah, the betrothal that the Messiah, Yeshua, made with the house of Jacob. Then the second stage of the biblical marriage is called Nesuin, when you physically dwell with your spouse. It is during the Messianic era and ultimately in the period of the new heavens and the new earth that Yeshua will be physically dwelling and being with his bride. So the betrothal is associated and connected with Mount Sinai, but the completion of the marriage is associated and connected with Mount Zion. In order for there to be a marriage, the bride-to-be must accept the proposal of the bridegroom. We see how the God of Israel, that is the Messiah, made a marriage proposal to the house of Jacob at Mount Sinai. In Exodus chapter 19 and verse 3 and then in verse 5 it is written, And Moses went up unto God, and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel. Now therefore, here's the proposal. If you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. The house of Jacob says, I do to that proposal. We find this in Exodus chapter 19 verse 8 and it says, And all the people answered together and says, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. Do you accept the marriage offer? Yes, we do. And Moses returned the words of the people unto the Lord. In this marriage, you are going to have what is known as a marriage contract. In Hebrew, the term is a ketubah. It will state the terms and and the conditions, the rights and the obligations of the marriage that is going to be taking place between the bridegroom and the bride. In the Torah, the ketubah is spelled out in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and Leviticus chapter 26 where it says, if you will be obedient to your vows, all these blessings will come upon you. But if you will be disobedient to your vows, then all these curses will come upon you. And further seeing that a marriage took place at Mount Sinai, Moses is seen as being an escort of the bride, that is the house of Jacob, and he's escorting the bride to Mount Sinai, and Mount Sinai is likened unto a hoopah, which is a wedding canopy where the marriage is going to take place. In Exodus chapter 19 verse 17 it says, And Moses brought forth the people, he escorted them, out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the nether part of the mount. If we look at what the King James translates as the nether part of the mount, the word nether is the Strong's number 8482. It's a Hebrew word, takti, and the word means the low, the lower, the lowest part of the mountain. So the imagery is that the people stood at the base of the mountain or the lower part of the mountain. The imagery here conveys the thought that Mount Sinai is a hoopah and the people are standing underneath the hoopah and they are given the terms and the conditions of 
the marriage and they are affirming their commitment to the bridegroom there at Mount Sinai. In a biblical marriage, there has to be a sanctification of the bride before she can ultimately be married to her bridegroom. We see this in Exodus chapter 19 verse 10 that it is written, And the Lord said unto Moses, Go unto the people and sanctify them, set them apart, make them holy today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes. What is the understanding of sanctification? It means to be holy, to be set apart. What do the scriptures say about how we are sanctified? In John chapter 17, verse 17, Yeshua prayed, Sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. It's by the blood of Yeshua where we are justified, become a part of his family, but by obeying his word and being faithful to him by loving him with all of our hearts, mind, soul, and strength, that is where we go through the sanctification process. And sanctification process is where we become clean. What is it that makes us dirty? Sin. And so as we remove the sin out of our lives and draw closer to him, we are going through the sanctification process. We do that when we are obedient to his word, to his Torah. Sanctify them through your truth. Your Torah is truth. The Torah is defined as being truth in Psalm 119 verse 142. Thy righteousness is an everlasting righteousness and your Torah is the truth. We can also see where the Torah is defined as being truth in Malachi chapter 2 verse 1 and verse 6 which says, And now, O ye priests, this commandment is for you. The Torah of truth was in his mouth. So we're sanctified by the truth. Your word is truth and the word is the Torah. When we are obedient, that is how we are sanctified in the eyes of the God of Israel. It says in Ephesians chapter 5, we're sanctified by the washing of the water of the word. You have the same principle there in Ephesians in chapter 5. In Revelation chapter 19 verse 7 and 8, we see how the, the bride is sanctified because she's made herself ready for the marriage. It reads, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the Lamb is come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. In Exodus chapter 19 verses 14 and 15, we can further see what the God of Israel required for his bride as she came to be wedded unto the God of Israel and the sanctification that she had to go through or, or what he required of her. It says in Exodus 19 verse 14, And Moses went down from the mount unto the people and sanctified the people and they washed their clothes. And he said unto the people, Be ready against the third day. Come not at your wives. The word come is the Strong's number 5066. It's the Hebrew word nagash. And that word means to draw near, to approach. And it can have the meaning in the context of intimacy. What the God of Israel was doing by making this requirement is he did not want his people to approach him at Mount Sinai in a defiled state. There was a chance that if he didn't make the requirement that was given, that there would be some in the camp who would be defiled 
defiled, and the way we can see that they would be defiled, we can understand this from Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 5 and 6, and make the connection here to Exodus chapter 19, verses 14 and 15. So in Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 5 and 6, it says, But if a man be just and do that which is lawful and right, and here you can apply this to the God of Israel, if he is going to do what is lawful and right, it says, He has not eaten upon the mountains, neither has he lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, neither has he defiled his neighbor's wife, committed adultery. And then, as it relates to our verse in Exodus 19, verses 14 and 15, neither has come near to a menstruous woman. So this is what the God of Israel was guarding against that he didn't want to happen because then those who would have done that would have been defiled and be unclean in approaching the mountain and being wedded unto the God of Israel. So we see that the purpose of creation is that the Torah was going to be received by Israel as a marriage covenant and the one who was going to enter into this marriage is Yeshua the Messiah. And ultimately, not only in entering into marriage with his people, but he would be dwelling with his people in the way this was personified in historical times. The personification of Yeshua dwelling with his people was through the divine presence or the glory of the Lord. When the tabernacle was built, we are told in Exodus chapter 40 verse 34, then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. This is a spiritual picture that when the house of the God of Israel is fully built, then he is going to dwell with his people and his glory is going to be with his people. We can see this personified in the new Jerusalem in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 23 it is written, in the city that is the new Jerusalem had no need of the sun neither of the moon nor shine in it for the glory of God did lighten it and the lamb is that light. The Messiah is the glory of God that is present in dwelling with his people. And looking at the various themes of Rosh Hashanah which means the head of the year. The biblical name is Yom Teruah, the day of the shout or the day of the awakening blast. In the ensuing sessions as we will be studying Rosh Hashanah, we will cover these various themes. Number one, it is associated with a time of repentance in Hebrew known as Heshuva. Rosh Hashanah itself means the head of the year. The rabbis teach that the world was created on Rosh Hashanah. It is known as Yom Teruah, the day of the awakening blast. It is known as Yom Hadin, the day of judgment. Number five, it is known as Yom Hazikaron, the day of remembrance. Number six, it is known as Hamelech, the coronation day. It is associated with the days of awe, the days in between. Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are called the days of awe. It is associated with the opening of the gates of heaven. It is said that the gates of heaven are open on Rosh Hashanah to receive the prayers of the repentant. It is associated with a wedding and this is what we're going to focus on in this session along with the next two themes that is Rosh Hashanah being the last trump referring to the shofar blast and the resurrection of the dead. Finally a theme of Rosh Hashanah or Yom Teruah is Yom HaKeseh. It is known as the hidden day. Now what we're going to do in this 
session, we're going to link together this concept of the wedding, the last trump, and the resurrection of the dead. The traditional readings for Rosh Hashanah, and in particular, we are going to discuss the reading for day two of Rosh Hashanah. There's a two-day celebration of Rosh Hashanah that the rabbis decreed, instituted for those who are living in the diaspora or exiled in the nations of the world. For those who are exiled, Rosh Hashanah is celebrated as two days. And so on the second day, the Torah reading is from Genesis chapter 22. And the half Torah, or the reading of the prophet, is from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 1 through 19. We're going to now look at the thematic connection of why Genesis 22 is read at Rosh Hashanah and why Jeremiah 31, 1 through 19. The rabbis teach regarding Genesis chapter 22 that the binding of Isaac, which we read in Genesis 22, took place on Rosh Hashanah or Yom Teruah. And the source for this is Pasekta, Rabasi 40. The half Torah reading, that is from Jeremiah 31, verses 1 through 19, the rabbis teach that in mentioning Rachel, that this is a reference to the ten tribes because their leader was Jeroboam from the tribe of Ephraim, who was Rachel's grandson. Ephraim in these passages refer to the ten tribes who will be redeemed in the future along with Judah. That commentary comes from the art scroll Rosh Hashanah Ashkenaz Machzor, the prayer book, on page 402 is where you find the reading, and on page 420 and 421 you will find the explanation of what I just read for you. Now let's understand the connection to Genesis 22 and the significance of the event that happened there when Abraham was asked by the God of Israel to offer up his son Isaac as a burnt offering or an olah. There are three trumpets known as shofarim that mark major events in the redemptive plan of the God of Israel. And these trumpets are associated with days of the year. They are known by the following names. The first trump, the last trump, and the great trump. The first trump and the last trump, these are going to relate thematically back to Genesis chapter 22 and the ram that got caught in the thicket. The horns of the ram that was caught in the thicket, the rabbis call the two horns the first trump and the last trump. The rabbis teach that those horns or those trumps trumpet blasts are going to herald significant events in the history of the nation of Israel and they are going to be associated with the God of Israel redeeming his people. That first horn, known as the first trump, was blown in Exodus chapter 19 and it's associated with Shavuot. The last trump, or the second horn of the ram that was caught in the thicket, is associated with Rosh Hashanah or Yom Teruah. The great trump is a shofar that's associated with Yom Teruah. The rabbis teach that the first and last trump represent the left and right horns of the ram that was caught in the thicket when Abraham offered up his son Isaac on the altar. This is known as the akedah or the binding of the sacrifice. When Abraham offered up Isaac as an olah or a burnt offering to the God of Israel on Mount Moriah as we are told in Genesis chapter 22. It's because of this 
that in traditional Judaism on the second day celebration of Rosh Hashanah that Genesis 22 is read. And looking at Genesis chapter 22 verse 13 it says and Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold behind him the Hebrew word is achar a ram. What does achar mean? Achar is the Strong's number 310. The definition of the word is after the following part. It comes after the event that happened. It can mean afterwards or in the future. Well, that's going to conclude part one of the series on the subject, the Feast of Trumpets, a wedding celebration. Shalom in Yeshua the Messiah. Amen. Thank you, Eddie. This is Stephen Morgan, and all of us here at Hebraic Heritage Ministries pray that you have enjoyed today's teaching. If you've been blessed, will you help us to share this message with others? Hebraic Heritage Ministries is supported by your generous financial gifts in order to help you in your studies and to help us share this message with others. We are offering today the DVD, Yeshua the Lawgiver, for free for a love gift of any amount to the ministry. Hebraic Heritage Ministries also offers a monthly discipleship program. If you are interested in starting a fellowship group in your area, let us know. We would like to help you. Please contact us for more details. Our website is hebroots.org. That's H-E-B-R-O-O-T-S dot O-R-G. We would like to hear from you. Please send us an email. Finally, in order to take advantage of today's free offer, please mention this product offer and... Please mail your love gift to Hebraic Heritage Ministries, P.O. Box 81, Strasburg, that's S-T-R-A-S-B-U-R-G, Ohio, 44680. Until next time, may Yeshua richly bless you.